0: Good morning, everybody. I was uh, sitting down there listening to Dustin welcome us, and I thought, I never expected to hear these words, thank you for tuning in. And yet, we're getting fairly used to it uh, at some level. I hope that uh, you, you put today to good use. So members of Mount Vernon especially, uh, this is another day to not grow weary in doing good. Uh, perhaps you can think about a couple members of the church that you could reach out to even today, uh, to encourage them, uh, to tell them, to pray for them and to tell them you're praying for them. And uh, The more of us do that, uh, the easier it is for us to endure as a church through a season of of isolation. But for now, we take advantage of the technology that we have, and we want to go to God through his word to understand him better, to understand what he expects of us better, that we might give him glory as we persevere in the faith, and as we contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Because that responsibility, uh, it, it doesn't take a break. Uh, We are constantly responsible for preserving the faith, even under circumstances that uh, force us to be separated from one another. So that's what we're going to do over the course of the next few minutes as we dive into the Bible together. So I'd encourage you to get your Bibles out now, and you can turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians. As you're turning there, Uh, i would note that every once in a while i run into someone or hear about someone who is interested in buddhism Uh, buddhism is the world's fourth largest religion with nearly half a billion followers in america there are many who would never claim to be buddhist but who i would argue are surprisingly interested in and attracted to at least buddhism's core beliefs now One of these beliefs of Buddhism is that, spiritually speaking, you have everything you need inside of yourself to attain good things. In other words, you don't need God. You don't finally need the influence of of others around you. You have the capacity in and of yourself to meet all of your spiritual needs. Now, that's attractive for an individualistic can-do American uh, uh, attitude, that that view is very attractive. Well, another aspect of Buddhism is this idea that if you could just find a way to marshal your energy and extinguish your desires, well, then you can achieve a certain amount of uh, refuge or freedom or peace. And so, when you put those two ideas together, Buddhism teaches that in a world that is filled with all sorts of trials and all sorts of conflict and all sorts of bad things, you have everything you need inside of you to achieve a state of peace, all on your own. And I think this is why so many people are attracted to Buddhism. It says, you are the source of peace that you need. Now, no matter your age, no matter your income, no matter your stage of life, no matter your circumstances, we all want peace. Uh, Peace is universally desired. We all want to feel peace. We know what it's like to feel unrest. We want to feel rest. We want to feel peace. It's true for every one of us. But it's so important for us as Christians to think biblically about peace, to go to God's Word and find out how God's Word informs us about what peace is and how we find it. If I don't go to the Bible to get God's wisdom to shape my understanding of peace, well, then I'm going to be like a a marathon runner who's running to the very end but he doesn't know where the finish line is. Well, that's a a horrible situation to be in. But that's the situation of the individual running after peace, but looking only within to find it. Now, my prayer for you during this coronavirus pandemic, my prayer is that you will devote some of your time to self-examination. This is something that should mark uh, believers all the time. Uh, Dane mentioned the spiritual graces or the spiritual disciplines that that we should attend to as believers, regardless of our schedule. But as our church schedule has been obliterated, basically, in that sense, we all have additional time to devote ourselves to self-examination, and so that's been my prayer for you and my prayer for me and my family, that we would be more thoughtful about the areas in our lives and in our church's life that we need to grow. And as you do that, that you'll be praying that God would bring revival to your own heart, that you would grow in your awe of God and of the mercy and compassion and grace that he has so abundantly provided to you in the... The metaphor that I've been using is that of a spiritual house, right? Thinking of your spiritual life, your spiritual condition, like a really large house filled with with many, many rooms. And as we examine ourselves, it's like we're walking through this spiritual house, going into this room and that room, seeing what's there and seeing what needs to change so that our spiritual house is a better reflection of our creator and our redeemer. And the room within our spiritual house that we want to look at today has Philippians 4, 7 written above the threshold. And that verse says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, before we go any further, let's wrap our head around why Paul would address this topic or theme of peace in his letter to the Philippians. And a survey, a brief survey of the letter will show us why the need for peace is such a a large part of Paul's burden for this particular congregation. Now, Philippi is the city that Paul visited on his second missionary journey. He had with him Silas. He had with him Timothy, he had with him Luke. This is the uh, the trip to Philippi where Lydia, uh, where her heart was opened up by the gospel and, and she was saved. This is the trip where the young girl who was possessed by a demon uh, was released from that demon when she encountered the apostle Paul. <clears throat> this is the trip where Paul uh, is imprisoned And the jailer who imprisoned Paul was saved by the Lord. So a lot of uh, amazing things happened as the gospel came to Philippi and as God used that gospel to plant a church. And it's a church that Paul got to know. And it's a church that Paul got to love. Look if you would at Philippians chapter one, verse eight, notice. Paul's warm address to this congregation. He writes, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Maybe now, more than ever, you can appreciate the sentiment behind Paul's words there. Uh, This is the first and probably, probably the last time in our lifetime that we will be encouraged slash required to stay away from one another. Technology certainly softens the blow, but it doesn't take it away. Paul yearned to gather with his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And I hope that, that you yearn to gather with us together again. I hope for the rest of your life as you read throughout the Bible, and especially Paul's letters, that whenever you come across a verse from one of the apostles longing to be with uh, the people, that you'll remember this season in your life, and you will resonate with the longing believers are to have, to be with one another. Now, the reason for Paul's absence, of course, was not a a virus. It was the Roman Empire. They had imprisoned Paul for his faith, uh, for his claim that one can find peace with God only in Christ Jesus. They threw him in jail. They locked him up in Rome for preaching the gospel. And clearly, it's hard to feel at peace when you're in prison. But it wasn't just the the crusty, stale bread that Paul had to eat or the the cold uh, stone floor on which Paul had to sleep. All right, it's not just those things that would have uh, conspired to take away Paul's peace. There were other things going on as well. Uh, Paul knew that while he was locked up, there were men who were were taking the gospel that Paul had preached, and they were preaching it, but they were preaching it to afflict Paul. They were were preaching this message to do Paul harm. Maybe while Paul was locked up, they were seeking to to, to gather uh, followers of Jesus to themselves, perhaps so that they could eventually give them a false gospel. We don't know for sure exactly what was going on. We just know that Paul knew that while he was in jail, there were individuals taking his words and using his words to do him harm. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Some indeed, Paul writes, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So again, some some men, some preachers were seeking to do Paul harm while he was in jail, and Paul knew it. Now, Paul doesn't elaborate on what they were doing or how they tried to afflict him. His concern is clearly for the Philippians. He's like a father who stubs his toe while his children are being attacked by bears. Well, that father is not going to pay much attention to his stubbed toe. He's going to do everything he can to protect his children from the attack. He can't worry about himself. And so Paul lets us know of the conflict around him, but he doesn't dwell there. No, his concern is for his spiritual children. His concern is for the church. He wants them to persevere together in the faith. And that word together is really important. That appears to be Paul's burden. Paul's deeply, deeply concerned that his church remain united while he's apart from them. He wants them to live together in peace. Uh, Like you, my family, the Menikovs, has spent an awful lot of time under the same roof this past few weeks. It's been great, but uh, my family would be the first to admit that at times it's been a little bit difficult, hard to get along, hard to keep the peace. Sometimes it doesn't look like we are as united as a family as the Menikovs actually are. Well, we can't take peace for granted. We have to fight for it. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Likewise, Paul <clears throat> wants this church to, to fight for peace. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, <clears throat> so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Now, the next verses in Philippians are really the heart of the letter because this is where Paul explains how Christ did this. It's, it's where Paul explains how Christ refused to live a life of rivalry or conceit, how Christ single-mindedly devoted himself to the well-being, the good of others, counting others better than himself. Paul, Jesus modeled humility. He fought for peace. Now, verse 19 of chapter 2 is one of the most interesting in the whole letter, to me at least. Paul, after encouraging them about the humility of Jesus and the power of the gospel, uh, Paul tells them that he wants to send Timothy to them, his good friend, his companion in the faith, Timothy. And as an aside, Paul says that there just aren't many people like Timothy. He says he has a hard time finding people with a selfless attitude. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So in other words, it appears that Paul had a hard time identifying, finding people who were wholeheartedly concerned for Christ and for the body of Christ. And he wanted the Philippians to know that. Thankfully, Paul had Timothy. Paul knew Timothy. Paul sent Timothy. It it gets back, I think, to that message we had last week, thinking about humility. It really is hard to be truly humble. It is not easy to live the kind of life where you're not thinking about yourself primarily. I have a hard time doing, it, doing this. I think about myself an awful lot. It's difficult to make it clear that what's more important to you than anything else is Christ and his people. Well, by God's grace, Timothy was a brother like that, a brother who was willing to, to fight for peace Then in chapter 3, Paul raises a theological concern. He warns the church about legalism. False teachers are saying that, that peace with God can only be found via or through or by obedience to God's law, the keeping of Torah, the practice of circumcision, for example. And Paul identifies this as a heresy. This is no gospel at all to argue that peace with God is found through the work of your hands. This is a teaching that's to be repudiated. It's a teaching that needs to be repudiated simply every year of the calendar since the time of Christ. For every century, we find this heresy repackaged and put out for sale on the shelves of churches and so-called churches from the justification by works doctrine of Roman Catholicism, to the give to the church so that you will be materially rewarded doctrine of the so-called prosperity gospel. So many people, so many religious people are looking from within themselves their own ability to meditate and contemplate their own ability to, to do good things. They're looking within themselves to find peace. And, and Paul responds by saying, look, if peace could be found within, if peace could be found by obedience to the law, well, I would have no need for Jesus Christ. I, I, I wonderfully obeyed the law. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I knew the law inside and out. But I gave it all up, Paul says. I gave up the prestige, Paul says, of being a a Pharisaical leader. He gave the wealth up that presumably came with his position. He gave the comfort and security up of being a religious leader of his day. He gave it all up for the gospel. You see, Paul had a good life before he became a a Christian. He knew respect, he knew comfort, he knew wealth. He was a big deal and esteemed leader, but he gave it all up for Christ. He gave it all up even though he knew that following Christ would inevitably mean sharing in the sufferings of Christ, even though he knew that following Christ would mean jail. In other words, Whatever true peace is, Paul knew it it can't be found in, in creature comforts. Whatever true peace is, it can't be found within. It can't be found in obedience to the law. It can't be found inside oneself. True peace is found in Christ alone. And so Paul wants the church to follow him in this. He wants the church to be united in this great call, really to to follow Christ, to make Jesus the center of of everything, even if that means persecution. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I want you to appreciate how how God designed us. In other words, what Paul is appealing to is the magnificent design of God, recognizing that we are called to live together in community. We are not called to live as isolated, immediate families who rarely see one another. No, not at all. We are called to live in community so that our lives are visible enough so that you can see me and how I live, and so that by the grace of God I might be able to say to you, "Hey, hey, join in imitating me. Join in imitating those who are who are living like this. This is how we're supposed to live." I want us to remember that uh, as we have this brief time apart. by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved." So many of the themes that we've been talking about these past few weeks are bubbling up all over Paul's letter to the Philippians. We see Paul's boldness in sharing the gospel even as he's in a Roman prison. We see the church's willingness to do good uh, to others, to do good to Paul through the ministry of Epaphroditus, we see in chapter 2. We see repeated calls to, to rejoice. We read of Paul's own joy. This entire letter has actually been called by Christians for centuries, the epistle of joy. We see the longing for Christ as Paul is so eager For his lowly body to be transformed into the glorious resurrection body that he knows will be his when Jesus returns. And we find the most beautiful picture of humility in the entire scriptures in Philippians chapter 2. So many of the things we've been talking about in anticipation of God bringing revival to our lives and to our church is found right here in Paul's letter to the Philippians and then as Paul draws the letter to a close, he turns our attention to the topic of conflict. There's conflict in the church. There's a lack of peace in the church and and whatever it is, it's so bad that it needs to be addressed publicly. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, I entreat you, Odi, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life." Well, we don't know the exact nature of the controversy, but Paul did. And again, whatever these ladies were arguing about was affecting the church as a whole. Were they arguing about a particular ministry in the church? Were they arguing about how they thought something ought to be done? Had Syntyche offended Euodia, which led Euodia to stop attending church altogether? I don't know. I just know they needed help, right? They needed biblical counsel. It's good to receive help. It's good to ask for help. It's good when those around you believe you need help, but you didn't ask for it, to nonetheless receive it when they offer it. It's too easy for us to be like a child who would rather go hungry than let mom or dad cut up his steak. We shouldn't be like that. We should be eager and willing to receive help. And I just want to stop and ask if that's you, before the, the live stream, uh, I was praying and I was I was praising God because I know that, that so many of you are doing so well during this strange season. You're in the word. You're taking advantage of the extra time you might have to, 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 to lean into God. You're uh, engaging as best you can in community, as best you can You're doing well, Uh, looking forward to being together again, but doing well. But I trust that in a church our size, there are some of you who are not doing so well. Maybe you're single and the isolation is exactly the opposite of what you needed to grow closer to the Lord and see revival burst forth in your heart. Maybe you're married and right now uh, being spending this much time with your husband or your wife is really hard and you're really struggling. Maybe you're a kid of whatever age and just being at home and having your schedule upended the way it's been upended by the COVID-19 virus is really taking a toll on you. If that's you. I. I implore you to ask for help. Yodia and Syntyche's conflict went public. And so Paul rightfully addressed them publicly and was able to lead someone to bring them the help that these ladies needed. But what about you? What if you found a way to hide your need for help? And I want to exhort you not to do that. I'm here for you. You can email me. You can call me. I or someone else in the church body, or more than one person, can bring you the help that you need. What an interesting way for Paul to end such a glorious letter by dredging up the nitty-gritty reality that we are sinners, often in conflict, always in need of, of help. Well, in any event, in verse four, Paul speaks to the whole church. He urges them to rejoice always. He charges them to be reasonable. That word be reasonable can mean be gentle. It can mean be fair-minded. It can mean be be quick to forgive. So Paul says, be like that, be reasonable. And then he reminds them the Lord is near, so they don't need to be anxious or fearful about anything. God is near. Everything's going to be okay. And when they're troubled, they should pray. They should ask God for help. They should ask with hearts filled with thanksgiving. And then here's the promise in verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, like a soldier guarding a fortress, will guard your hearts, and your minds in Christ Jesus. And in light of that wonderful promise, I want to talk about peace, and then I want to make just a couple points of application about what this could mean for your life and for our life as a church. Now, what I'm about to say is really the most important bit of this message. What I'm about to say is really more important than than anything else. It's the heart of it. And here it is for the Christian the peace of God is a fact it's not a feeling for the Christian the peace of God is a fact it's not a feeling it's not a state of mind it's not a dream it's not an aspiration it's not an inner work you do by yourself no peace is the rock-solid guarantee that if Christ is your Savior, you are reconciled to God, your Father. You have peace with God. Your sin is paid for. God's war with you is over. And his wrath toward you is exhausted. Star Wars fans will know that peace was broken because the evil emperor didn't really die. When the emperor was alive, the war could never come to an end. Well, For the Christian, there really is an end to the war. Christ really is victorious over sin and death completely, entirely. For the Christian, the sword of God's wrath has been returned back to its sheath forever. Peace is the objective reality. The Son of God incarnate died on the cross for your sins, and God the Father is fully and forever receiving you into his family. We get a taste of this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the people of God, when they were thinking clearly, rightly understood that God had a quarrel with them. God was against them because of their sin. They deserved God's wrath. They deserved death. And how do we know the people of God in the Old Testament understood this? Because God gave them priests. Because God gave them the temple. Because God gave them sacrifices. And because God said, if you want me to be at peace with you, Your priests need to make sacrifices for your sins so that when you see those animals slain, you'll know that this is what you deserved, but that I provided a way out through the blood of an animal. And so it's no surprise that many of those sacrifices in the Old Testament are actually called peace offerings, because the offering of these sacrifices, at least for a season, brought the individual sinner into a state of peace with God. God, through the temple, was at peace with his people. The past few weeks, I've recounted stories from various Old Testament kings, King Jehoshaphat, King Uzziah. Today, I want to recount an event from the life of King David. After serving many years as king and acquiring great respect and building a great army, David ordered a census, a counting of his battalions. Uh, He did this out of pride. Uh, He did this because instead of trusting the Lord, David put his faith in his soldiers, in his shields, in his swords. And David's census was David's sin. And it angered God. God declared war on David and really on all of Jerusalem, whom David had led into this sin. God's wrath against David and his people for this particular sin took the form of a gigantic sword unsheathed and hanging over the city of Jerusalem. And that sword was ready to fall on Jerusalem and kill the people in a plague. You see, David's sin had unleashed God's fury. And God went to war against his people. Now, what happened? Well, David wisely repented and uh, he offered up a sacrifice to God. We read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Let me read to you just a couple of verses. Chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, verses 26 and 27. We read about what happened when the sword of God was hanging over Jerusalem, ready to fall in judgment. Verse 26, and David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. And then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath." That's peace. It wasn't a feeling though I'm sure it felt good to see that sword put away. No, peace is a fact. When David acted as the people's priest, offering up a sacrifice for his sin and for the sin of the people, when David shed the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of the peace offering, the sword went away. Peace came, peace purchased by the blood of a lamb. Now what we see here is just really a shadow of a greater peace to come because of a greater priest and a greater sacrifice. Listen to how Paul put it in Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But peace isn't a feeling it's not an an aspiration it's a it's a blood-bought reality it's a rock-solid truth peace is a fact so before God saved you and I'm speaking to the Christian now before God saved you the sword of God's wrath hung over you because of your rebellion against him that saturated the entirety of your life it, it doesn't matter if you were born in a pew. It doesn't matter if up until the pandemic, you, you never missed one day in church. But right? outside of Christ, sin so saturated you that everything you did is rebellion against him because if it's not done for the Lord, it's not honoring to the Lord. And that's all of our lives outside of Christ. And so we, we go through life, we went through life with the sword of God's condemnation hanging over each and every one of us just as the sword of the angel hung over the city of Jerusalem because of David's and that city's sin. But on that cross, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died, when he hung there, It's as if the sword of God's wrath fell on Christ instead of on you. All of God's animosity towards you, all of his anger towards you, all of his hatred of you extinguished. Because Jesus took all of that upon himself. And because of that precious and powerful work, Paul says in Romans 5, 1, that having been justified by faith, having believed that message that I just shared with you right now, having believed that, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's not a feeling, not an aspiration, not a dream, not a longing. It is a blood-bought fact. Now let's go back to Philippians. Are there any indications that this objective reality, that this peace is what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, 7? I think we have some hints. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. What does Paul call his fellow workers? He calls them those whose names are written in the book of life. Those whose names are written in the book of life. Do you know what John calls that book of life in the last book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8? It's called the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain, whose names are written in that book of life. Those for whom Christ died. That's a fact. Look at chapter 4. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why rejoice? Like, why pray with thanksgiving? I understand the need to, to, to pray for things. We're a needy people but but why pray with thanksgiving? Well, the only reason to pray for thanksgiving is because you're thankful for something. What should they be thankful for? These Philippians should be thankful that they've been justified by faith and they now have peace with God. Peace is a fact. Look at verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is excuse me, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Well, that begs the question, what is true? What is commendable? What is honorable? What is just? What is excellent? Is it not this great truth that God in Christ lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose from the grave so that through faith in him you might have everlasting life? You might be at peace? Is there anything more awesome than that truth? And Paul says think about that stuff. That's what I want you to be thinking about. Think about the reality of the peace bought by the blood of Christ. Peace is a fact. And everything that I've just mentioned makes the very end of verse 9 of chapter 4 make so much sense. This is why, it's why we don't just have the peace of God. We have the God of peace. Everything that I've talked about gets right to the heart of the character of God. What is God like? He is a God of wrath, yes, but he is a God of love who makes a way of salvation for sinners like us. He's the giver of peace. Peace doesn't come from the inside, right? Then, then we would be, we would be the givers of peace. No, peace from comes from God. We worship the God of peace. Well, now it's time to apply this truth, Uh, there's a lot that could be said. I would encourage you as you go about your week to be expanding upon the particular application that I'm about to give you, expand upon it, reflect upon it, meditate upon it. How should we apply this unique Christian fact that peace is an objective reality for the believer? I want to apply it in a couple of ways. First, I want to apply it to the family of faith, our local church. At the start of the message, I admitted what you already knew, that the Menikoff's are not a perfect family. There have been several times in the quarantine where tempers have flared. Uh, I've not always been kind and gentle, but we're a family. We love one another. We persevere. We strive to live out the love that we know we have as a family, as one family. And the same is true with this scattered family of faith. We have our conflicts. We have our quarrels, right? So just to bring it to 2020, maybe Euodia thinks we all need to shelter in place until August. Maybe that's Euodia's conviction. She thinks the governor is crazy to open anything up this early. Meanwhile, Kay has a different opinion. She thinks this whole lockdown is a travesty from the very beginning, and she wants everything opened up yesterday. Differing opinions can cause conflict. They can chip away at our peace. Here's the promise. Christians are different. Christians aren't like the rest of the world. Christians live life together with a kind of peace that transcends understanding. In other words, the, the greatest testimony is living out the love we have in Christ by being at peace with one another. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, We don't, we don't check our opinions at the door when we gather. You remember that gathering thing, right? We all come together in one building, amazing. And when that happens, even then, we don't check our opinions at the door. No, we're not automatons. We're not robots who don't have opinions, who don't think. We, as believers, have passionate disagreements. We don't share the same opinions, but we do share the mind of Christ. And so we lean into Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others as more significant than yourself." So in the most fundamental sense possible, a local church is already at peace. Uh, Yeah, do we fight for peace? Sure. Do we strive for peace? Absolutely. Do we aim for peace? Every day. But make no mistake, in Christ, we are already at peace. The dividing wall of hostility has already been brought down. We have already been united in Christ. Now, it is our duty and our privilege to live out the peace that we already have. There's simply no other way. Peace in the family of God is present. And because it's present, it's possible to live it out every day. Now, what might it look like for you to aim for peace? What might it look like for you to Count others as more significant than yourselves. So much could be said. I'm going to say just a few things here. Never disparage or speak ill of another brother or sister in Christ. Never disparage or speak ill of another brother or sister in Christ. Right? The peace that we share with one another in Christ should shape the way we think about one another, and it should shape the way we communicate about one another. Never speak ill or disparage another brother or sister in Christ. We can voice our opinions, but there is no room in the church of the living God for rivalry and for conceit. It's interesting, Paul seems to begin Philippians with this theme and end Philippians with this theme. There's no room in the church for rivalry when Jesus has shed his blood for us. Now, Another way to apply this, pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Elders are tasked with making hard decisions, decisions that rarely make everyone happy. These decisions touch on everything from how exactly we organize a corporate worship service where the elders have responsibility for the songs that are sung for the way those songs are sung, for the particulars of, of a gathering. The elders have responsibility for that. The elders have responsibilities, very practically 2020, for how exactly Mount Vernon is going to open up over the course of the next few weeks. So pray for your elders. Pray they have wisdom. Recognize that, that our goal, that the goal of the elders is the glory of God and you're good. But elders fumble the ball. That happens. Elders are not perfect. But the peace we share is like the field on which we're all running. That field is not going to be shaken. That field is the work and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. For that, we can be sure. So pray for your elders, especially during this time. I would like us to be an amazing testimony of God's sovereign goodness, grace, and peace as we regather when we think best, again, to the praise of His glorious grace. Now, kids, I want to speak to you for just a moment. I haven't done that this week yet. I'd like to do that. Uh, If you're still there, are you there? All right, I want to speak to you for a moment. I recognize that you know a thing or two about conflict. My guess is it hasn't been very long since you've engaged in conflict. With a brother, with a sister, with mom, with dad, grandma, grandpa, uh, maybe a a, a friend you have, maybe even a church friend. My guess is that, no, not my guess. I know that you are no stranger to conflict. And uh, arguing, well, I hope you don't find arguing fun. And often arguments leave people in tears, don't they? People can be crying. Maybe you're crying. Maybe you leave a sibling crying. Uh, Relationships are hard, whether they're in your immediate family, uh, even in your church family, these kind of relationships are hard. But I want you to know that your most important relationship is with God. Your most important relationship is not with your mom or dad. It's not with your siblings. It's not with your school friends. It's not with your church friends. Your most important relationship is with God. And you need to understand that each of us is born in such a way that God has a quarrel with each one of us. And that means that outside of Christ, God has a quarrel with you. Your relationship with God is not what it ought to be. It's not what it should be. Your relationship with God is broken because of sin. This is what the Bible teaches on on every single page. And that's why you need Jesus. That's why you need Jesus's death, where he died on the cross to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. It's why you, you need Jesus's resurrection, where he proves that he is glorious and that he has the power to conquer sin and death and bring everlasting life. You need that. If you don't have faith in that good news that I just gave you, that's what you need. And so I encourage you right now to turn away from the ugliness, the sin, the cold-heartedness, the bitterness in your own life. Turn away from that sin, that selfishness. And you turn towards the Lord. Turn towards Christ. If you don't know how to do that, if you don't know what it looks like to repent and believe, well, maybe you have parents who can help you with that. An older brother and sister, a pastor at Mount Vernon, an elder at Mount Vernon, we're here to help. But you're old enough, if you can understand my words right now, you are old enough to turn away from your sin and to trust in Christ. And the reason why I bring this up is because You'll never have good relationships with other people until you have a right relationship with God. The peace that you need is not fundamentally with your friends. The peace that you need is peace with God. Well, brothers and sisters, what I just shared with the kids is what I'm sharing with all of us, right? As a church, whether we are scattered or gathered, our heartbeat has to be that each one of us individually is reconciled to our maker. And that happens only by and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, peace is a fact. Let's press ahead to live peaceably with one another. I want to end with one more piece of application. I want to apply the fact of peace, not to the family. I want to apply it to our feelings. That's where I want to end this morning. I'll ask a question. Do you ever get seasick? I've told you this story before, but about a year after I got married, Dina's parents were very kind to take Dina and I, uh, take Dina and me deep sea fishing off of the coast of Oregon. Again, I've told you about this before, uh, mm, yeah, pretty much the worst day of my life. It was awful. the up and down of the waves, the, uh, the wind, uh, the, the minutes that really did seem like days. And, and unless, you str- unless you struggle with seasickness, you're just laughing at me. But there are some of you that struggle with seasickness and you know what I'm talking about. It's awful. Now, those of you who particularly struggle with anxiety You feel the same way, not nauseous, but you feel misunderstood, isolated, like nobody can really understand just how hard it is for you. And you might even feel a little bit embarrassed, a little ashamed to struggle with anxiety, especially in the church, because you know the message. Our God is a God of peace, so you should rejoice. But when you don't feel the peace, When you struggle to feel the joy, it's hard. Well, you aren't alone. Feelings of discouragement, of uncertainty, even of doubt, they're common to more people than you might think, even if you feel like you're the only one. And Paul doesn't go into detail, but I'm struck that as he sat there in that jail in Rome, he remembered men who were trying to afflict him. Why does Paul even bother bringing that up? He doesn't go into any great detail. I wonder if Paul was anxious, wondering what would happen to his ministry as these men were were chipping away at his work while he couldn't do anything about it. What about Jesus? You know, I mentioned it last week. One day, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. The cross was right around his corner. Jesus was with a few of his disciples. Jesus did not want to die on that cross. He didn't want to. In his humanity, the cross displeased him. He didn't want to go there. He didn't desire it. How do we know? Because he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, that cup was the cross. Jesus was anxious for another way, desirous for another way. We all have our cups. We all have our crosses. We all have our unique circumstances that we just don't like. We don't like them at all. All of us. Like We all have something we want changed. I want church back to normal now. Like Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, now. I want the fact that that can not happen immediately changed. That's my desire. We, we all have something about our lives that we want different. All right, some, something maybe about, about our body, something about our mind, perhaps, something about our job, something about our family, something about, well, you fill in the blank. We all want something we want changed. That day on the Oregon coast, I wanted off the boat. At different seasons in my life, I've wanted different things, good things, things that God didn't see fit to give me. I'm not an anxious person, but I'm no stranger to anxiety. And that day on the water, all I could do was hang on for dear life to the railing of the boat. I couldn't make the wind stop. I couldn't make the water calm down. I tried, but I couldn't make the captain return to the shore. All I could do was hang on to the railing of the boat. My stomach didn't feel it, but my mind and my heart knew that I was safe. So long as I clung to the boat, I knew that I was safe. Well, I suppose it sounds pretty simple, but the best way to feel peace is to cling to the one you know can make you safe. Jesus Christ died for sinners, sinners like me. If you are a Christian, that's your peace. He's your peace. Peace doesn't come from the inside, as Buddhism teaches. No, peace is from the outside. It's a gift from God. Your boat will never sink. The cross of Christ is the the peace that, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And so what I'm saying is the fact of peace will change how you feel. Maybe gradual. Very rarely is it immediate. But the fact of God's peace will change how you feel. It will change how you approach life. It will change how you endure trials. And this is why Paul could write in Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How could Paul describe such a feeling of peace? Because of the fact of peace. He clung to the side of the boat. He clung to the cross. It's why Jesus, anxious for the pain of Calvary to be avoided, could follow up his prayer for the removal of the cup with these words to his heavenly Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Brothers and sisters, I want revival to come. I want it badly. Before this strange season comes to an end and life returns to what it once was, I do not want to be the same man that existed eight weeks ago. I want to be a changed man. I want to be more in awe of God's mercy, more in awe of God's compassion, more in awe of God's grace. And when I am, I will not simply try to feel peace. I will know, inside and out, the objective reality of God's peace, the God of peace. I will cling to the side of the boat, to Jesus who died for me. And that's my prayer for you. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as the church scattered. We are not in the same place. Lord, there are so many distractions in the living rooms, in the kitchens, in the dens of Mount Vernon members scattered throughout this great city. But Father, to the best of our ability, as we are the church scattered, we come before you And we pray that you would be to us who you are to us, our God of peace, that we would know intellectually that peace was won through the cross of Christ, that we would pray in accordance with that knowledge, making supplication to you with thanksgiving, and that the peace we have in Christ would now guard our minds and hearts, our collective minds and hearts as a local church, our individual mind and heart as individual Christians, that it would protect us in Christ Jesus. We love you, and we need you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.